Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Welcome back to Morning Footy. Uh, Estadio Azteca, one of the cathedrals of the game. So many incredible moments that we have seen here. Sight of Maradona's and of God. 1986 World Cup quarterfinal final match. That was amazing. Pele and Maradona won the World Cup there. Michael Jackson performing at the Azteca. Mm -hmm. Good grief. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. They hosted the first NFL regular season game. That's wild. 2005. Let's see, what else do we have? Anything? No? Is that our last graphic? Cool. Uh, well, ahead of the 2026 World Cup, the Azteca is going to be undergoing some partial renovations, and the rumor is that they could host the very first World Cup match of 2026. We, that has not been confirmed. It is a rumor. but That would make sense to me. It's, They're I technically mean, also still in the running for the final. Yeah, for the World Cup final. Yeah, but that's all. From all what I understand... Quarterfinals onward will be exclusively in the United States. Yes, I, I would hope so. That's what I've heard as well. But Mexico, and given that, I think Mexico would be the proper place, Azteca Stadium, to be the proper place to hold the first game of the tournament. Given that in 1970, it was the first World Cup held outside of Europe and South America. Mm -hmm. And this stadium is truly iconic. It's, it's incredible. It's one of the, I've never been, I think I'm the only one at this desk that's never been to the Azteca. It's one of those like bucket list stadiums that at some point in my life, I will go see a match there. Uh, but Charlie, I mean, it, we would be remiss not to, uh, to talk to you and your first-hand experience playing on the pitch as Azteca. Um, we obviously, I'm sure, we'll we'll talk about the goal that you scored there. But huge. I wanna I wanna hear about what it's like just taking the pitch. You spoke about mm -hmm. Michael Bradley and and kind of that experience and and how intimidating it could have it could be to walk out to all of those those Mexican fans. But what what did it feel like? Like what was what was that whole experience like for you? Well, you have to. First, start off with the stories, the storylines heading into a game like this, and some of the the rumors and the myths around Azteca Stadium. So, even as a player, you hear of the lore of it. A hundred percent. Really? I mean, the night before, we have to give fake names to the hotel. So you're thinking, oh, people are really going to call your room. People stole. What was your fake name? The hotel, Roger Pedactor. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he had it on yeah. me ready, like he was yeah. on Yeah, Ace Ventura, Roger Protector. But uh, there was thousands of Mexican fans that circled the hotel the night before mm. the game, playing music and running into the hotel with, with air horns. So I knew how important it was to the people. 
which excited me because I knew that this is a game of consequences. This, has, this is a purposeful game that, you know, you, you know it means just as much as, as, it, as it does to us as it, uh, for them. And so heading to the stadium, there's about 10,000 fans outside the stadium. And this is early. You yes, this is so two early. hours before the game. Bang it on the bus. So again, you're, you're hit with, with the importance of this match. So you get to the locker room, and we t at the start of this segment, we saw Pele won a World Cup there, and Maradona wins a World Cup there. Michael Jackson had performed there. You're seeing these plaques as you walk into the stadium. So now you're seeing the history of the stadium. You know the significance of what Azteca means to global football. So you're moved, and inside you, you have all these emotions, butterflies, nerves. You get to the locker room, you're going out. Now, you, you expect to see some people in the stands two hours before the game. Maybe a thousand people here, a thousand people. It was 80,000 people mm. in the stadium. Wow. Jeez. Two hours before the game. That's when I was like, oh my God, throw in the altitude, throw in the oxygen tanks at everyone's locker, and then the game starts, and it's the loudest environment you could ever be a part of. It is a dream. It is the game you would always imagine as a little kid being a part of. It, it's as good as playing in a World Cup final, that type of environment. And you, you're, you're buzzing, the, elect, the, the, the electricity is just going through your body and, and the game starts and you're playing and the, it, you know, it's US-Mexico, so it's super physical. And, and the fans really get behind their team. And it's because of, of that extra boost, you can tell the Mexican side plays with this, this, this fearlessness yeah. and it's contagious. That sounds awesome. I have goosebumps. I have goosebumps. We'll, um, I think we're gonna, we're gonna maybe show an iconic goal from there in, uh, in just a bit. But when you think about, you know, we looked at some of those images uh, coming into this segment. Nico, um, I have to imagine some of those really resonate with you, especially being an Argentine. Absolutely. The thing with the Estadio Azteca, it has like bumped up into folklore in Argentinian football history and really into football history period because it's not only Pelé that won in the 70s to claim his third World Cup title, Mara the folklore of the myth of Maradona becomes a reality in the Estadio Azteca because it's not only the yes. hand of God, it's the goal of the century where he dribbles past six England players from behind half field in a World Cup quarterfinal. And then they go on to win against West Germany, which is an underrated final, it was actually a really good final. Argentina was up 2-0, they conceded twice, and then they won it right before the 90th minute. Um, in, in regular time, to give Maradona his first and, and only World Cup title. So it has really become part of, of this Maradona legend, so it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a special place. A rock, Andres Calamaro, one of the most important rock stars of, of Argentina, mm. dedicates a song, it's called Estadio Azteca. Really? Yeah, it's a beautiful song. I have to listen to that. Yeah. And as, as a player, just to know you're walking on the same pitch that these legends, these icons played on and scored on, had these memorable moments. I mean, wh what else could you want as a professional football? Do you guys also, when you arrive to the Azteca, there's like a the cobblestone entrance mm -hmm. that's like downwards and off the, to the side. It's almost like a museum. There's all the badges, the clubs that have played in the yes. Azteca, the flags of the countries, and the game and the result on, on the wall it. when you're all coming in. And it hit, I'm a historian, so it hits me right in the heart. And, I, and I'm just, 
I'm walking down. I'm like, man, I didn't know. Roger Pedacker over here is a historian. That's why you got that room of old wood. What are you just in there with your little pipe? In there with your little pipe collecting stamps? Historians, coins. You got your compass out in his wooden room in his wooden study. Yeah, he's a historian. Everybody. Yeah. Oh, I remember those days. Honestly, the first thing you do. So the first time I was ever in the Azteca, to Charlie's point, I went to go find the Boca logo because Boca uh, won. Please, Charles, he's a historian. Charles, yeah. historian Charles. Yeah. I went straight to the Boca logo on the wall. Boca had won a first leg of a Copa Libertadores final against Cruz Azul in that stadium, and then I went to go find the Argentina flag. And when I got onto the pitch. I went to the goal where Maradona scored both oh. of those goals. It was like the first thing. You know it's something Goose special. Bumps. Yeah. Goose bumps. I can only speak of it from a, a fan, fan perspective. I also have heard the folklore, but not from a player's perspective. You hear of, like, you know, the bags of yellow water being thrown at the players. Uh, <laughs> is that, is that beer? Yeah, about? 100 beer. beer. <laughs> Historically, uh, one would say it's beer after it's been processed but, through the body. Uh, uric acid, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've heard of just the intensity of the fans. And when we got tickets, the only way we could get tickets was in the home section for USA versus Mexico, the last World Cup qualifier that uh, was there. I believe it was a no-no draw. I only believe because we couldn't get in until the 55th minute. It was security everywhere. You talk about the, the players' entrance with the cobblestone. We went everywhere to try to get into the stadium. It'll never we went be so the far. same, though. I get I, first the, the intensity wasn't the same. But when we get in, we have to climb all the way up. And you just see the grandness of the stadium from those top seats and you're like oh this is this is a cathedral is a great word this is like it felt like you were in a coliseum mm -hmm. it felt like uh you know gladiators were coming out onto the pitch and i remember there was a group of uh mexican dudes all in our seats people just sat wherever they wanted we hadn't been there in the first half and we're with a group of men and women and i said i said to the guys i'm like oh these are our seats he's like well someone's in our seat go kick them out and i'll go sit in their seat and i'm like okay great chest well now i'm thinking about romans <laughs> yeah and now well you're a historian <laughs> yeah. um, so you wouldn't know but i remember trying to convince them and i said could you at least let the women sit that we had some women that were with us i'm like could you just let the women sit just move over and eventually they did and this guy was like barely speaking to us when he found out i spoke spanish he started communicating a little bit but only a little bit and then i find out he's from tampa and i'm like dude get out of the seat you know <laughs> i was like i thought you're from here i'm like you're from tampa he's like sorry dude and then he ended up like moving over so we could sit next to him and we ended up having a great time but he had talked about going there with his father and he said going to the azteca you know his dad would have to lie to his mom and say that he was just going to go watch the game at a friend's house because the mom wouldn't let this young child go to the Azteca because of how intense the atmosphere mm -hmm. was. And you just feel wow. when you're there. I remember the first time I walked through the comedy store in L.A. I go through the back, first time I'm performing there, and you feel it. You feel the history of it. You feel, oh, wow, some of the greatest comedians in the world have performed in this space, and I'm about to. You felt the, the ghosts, as they used to call it, for Yankee Stadium. Uh, I felt the same thing when I was there. I'm like, I get it. I get a sense of why this is so important. I can only imagine how Sacred. much more intense that was as a player. Okay, so let's talk about some of the big moments for the U.S. at the Azteca. And Charlie Davies was a part of history, weren't you? Yes. Uh-huh. Can, we, can uh, yeah. we show it? There it is. There it is. Beautiful through ball from Landon. And I knew once I took that first touch in front of me, I, I wasn't going to get caught. And so I just had to... <laughs> Get to the corner and Get celebrate. Nuts. Yeah, looking like that rocker that he was. You see, about. Michael, Michael Bradley riding with me, uh, and and when I saw the ball hit the back of the net, that's when you I, I teleported out of my body. 
because th this was the moment I worked towards my whole life. I wanted this game more than any other game. It was the first U.S. men's national team game I watched in person, U.S.-Mexico at Foxborough in 1997. I saw the rivalry. I wanted it. I wanted to be a part of it, and I wanted to play in Mexico for that exact reason. And here I am scoring a goal in the ninth minute, and it went from the loudest place in the world you could ever be in to the quietest. Ooh, and you was, could feel that as you a... You could feel it. Yeah. And when I went to the flag to celebrate, I grabbed that flag, and I, I could see the faces. They were like, what? <laughs> and then it went to, from that to... And then I felt like I was in the movie 300 with all these <laughs> batteries and coins and, and Ooh, bags of, of, of yellow urine. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you said <laughs> Just being chucked at me. And, and I, I was able to dodge it a couple, but Michael Bradley was the only one who came to celebrate. He was willing to take, take some hits. Do you think, everyone do else you was do like, you think everyone was scared? Well, everyone said, I'm not wasting my oxygen on you. <laughs> no, wait, wait, I'm trying to wait. Can we show that again? I'm trying to look at the faces of the people in the crowd. I want to see them. Yeah, look at the guy yeah. in the fence. <laughs> They're like, okay. Yeah. That one dude is angry right under the word soccer. He is angry. He is not pleased with Chuck. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, he's gearing up to throw something. This other guy. <laughs> So right there. Uh, is that yeah. part of it, getting stuff thrown at you? Like that part of it? Is that part of the the wanting to score a goal there? No. No? I, no, it's just it's, like taking that shot. Go ahead. Try your best. No. no? You, know, like, you don't want keep that. Keep your door cells at yeah. home. <laughs> I had never experienced that. I never thought someone would, not only uh, one person, a whole section chucking stuff at you. That was the first time I had experienced that. So it, it made it that much better. Yeah. Highlight but, of yeah. your career, scoring yes. at the Azteca, mm -hmm. number one, no number question. One, without a doubt. Wow. Wow. You know, that's awesome. That's where the word Chuck comes from. You, it started at the Azteca. Historically? The historians. Historically. Oh, that was fun. Um, all right, guys, we're going to take a break. <gasps> Head coach of Sporting Kansas City, Peter Vermees, is joining us next ahead of a massive match on Decision Day against Minnesota. Can't wait to chat with him. Stick around. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to The Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes May 10th. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. Well, MLS Decision Day is almost here, and it always brings the drama. And on Saturday, a huge matchup between Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota United, who are both fighting for their postseason lives. A win for either team, along with some help from a few other games, are going to put them over the playoff line. That match, 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday on Apple TV+. And right now, we are absolutely delighted to welcome in the head coach of Sporting Kansas City, Peter Vermees. Peter, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. It's uh, I'm, I'm happy to be with you guys. Uh, okay, so you're no stranger to uh, the drama that Decision Day often brings. This is a massive six-pointer for you guys against Minnesota. They call this the friendliest rivalry in sports, but somehow I don't <laughs> think that's going to be the case on, on Saturday with so much on the line. What's been your message to the team leading up to this one? 
Uh, obviously, you guys know. You guys talked about it. We had obviously a tough start um, this year. Our objective was when we were, you know, our projection from a medical perspective and everything else that we're going to get to a place right around League's Cup that we might get the majority of our guys back, um, barring somebody didn't have a reoccurrence to an injury. And so it was coming out of League's Cup in that to make sure that we're in a position where we at least had a chance to make a push at the end to make the playoffs. And so the guys have put themselves in that position. And as I told them, I said, you know, it, it's now time to finish the job. Um, it's easy also to take your eye off of what you have to do and you're worried about everybody else. And so it's it's that time where you stop worrying about everybody else and you just stay completely focused on yourself. P PV, it's it's great to see you. You look the same as as you did when I was a, a young 20-year-old uh, trying, to, trying to make the U U.S. youth national team. Watching Sporting Kansas City. Just a City, little more gray. Just, just a, a little, little gray. gray. That's it. <laughs> watching, watching this Sporting Kansas City team, uh, when you have an Alan Polito who's, who's healthy and confident, what a difference maker is, that is for, for the club. Is that it? Is that all you need, basically? Because if you had him, it feels like you would, we'd be farther up the table because of, of how clinical he is and how he opens the game up in the attacking third. Look, I, I, there's no doubt that he's a big he's a big part of who we are. I, I think what happened to us early on is is so many guys were trying to do more than they needed to to make up for some of the things that we were missing within the group. And so, you know, then all of a sudden, guys are overcooking it. They're 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 taking too many touches. They're 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 maybe not shooting when they should. They take an extra touch, and now the guy has a chance to block it. Um, maybe they shoot and they should make an extra pass or they make an extra pass and they should shoot. We, we were just, we were outside of ourselves. And I think he no doubt has helped us uh, from a, a, a calmness, confidence, um, and then just our, our way of playing. Um, I always said when we first, when we were first, you know, uh, finalizing the deal uh, when we originally brought him in, I'd said, I, I don't know of another forward that, in my mind's eye, fit the way we wanted to play any better. And so uh, getting him has been great. Not having him in has been horrible, but having him back has, has helped out immensely. And I think it's helped all the rest of the guys around the group. Um, Peter, I want to ask you how difficult it is to prepare to play a team, even though you have a pretty good record against uh, Minnesota. But how do you prepare for a team that has a, a new coach, big coaching change? And uh, does it make it more difficult? Uh, but before that, I also want to know, if you win, will we actually get to see you smile? <laughs> I'll take that one last. Um, I think prior records mean zero in these situations, um, and in most cases cases because I think no matter how much time lapses by um, things always change you know uh, players could wake up on the wrong side of the bed uh, a, a coach could make a, a personnel change in the team uh, a, a guy could be confident at the time when you play the first time and the second time he's not as he's not informed so I think all those things are out the window I, I think what these games come down to is you know I during the course of the year, you'll get, in my position, you get asked a lot of times, you get asked, hey, um, is this a must win for you? And I, I'm always very, very hesitant to say uh, yes, because a lot of times they're not. Yeah, you want to win, you go in every game, you want to win, but they're not at those moments. The only times they're must wins in a situation like this 
and also a final. Those are your two situations, and I consider this to be a final. And Susanna, you asked a question earlier. Down the stretch here, I've told the guys that every one of these games is a final, knowing full well that we were going to you know, probably not win every one of them, but it was to have that mentality that that's what you're paying, playing in. And, and the final piece is, is that, uh, you know, I enjoy what I do, but, you know, I, I, I remember years and years ago, I listened to an interview um, uh, and uh, with, a, with another coach, and he was asked this question. He said, what would you take, what would you tell any prospective uh, wannabe managers? What, what, you know, what advice would you give them? And the first thing he said was, if you're not willing to suffer, you should not get into this profession. <laughs> and and I, I don't think you could sum it up any better. It's you, I love the profession. I love what I do. Um, at the same time, you have very few moments that you get a chance to enjoy, even when you win and when you win championships. Because immediately you have to get on to the to the to the next uh, objective you know either it's the next game or it's the it's the next season or what have you so um, if anything I'll be happy for the players because I think that if there's one thing that you know I, I've said this all along again another question been asked hey do you think you know you guys should get more credit for you know different things that you've done no I, I don't believe that what I do think is that the players should give themselves credit for Staying uh, in it, meaning every game we've played except for one half through this whole through this whole year, did I ever ever question the commitment by the guys? Mm. Um, and that, that's that, that's saying a lot, especially when you play as a congested season as we do in MLS. Well, PV, you just talked on what advice you'd give to a, to a potential coach. But what about a sporting director? Because you do both. And for someone to have been in your position for so long, since 2009, that speaks to the culture that you have and just how good of a man manager you are. So my question to you is, what advice would you give to a potential sporting director? And then on top of that, how I know you're a loyal guy as well. So how do you have those conversations with you know, players who have served the club for a long time to say, hey, time's up. You know, thank you for your service and what you've done, but I think we have to, to part ways here, and, and that's part of the business. But how do you have those conversations? Yeah, I, I'll go with the first question. Um, I think as a sporting director, you have to have the long-term view. And I think it's one of the things that has helped me immensely because as a coach, you're short-term, right? You're like, oh, my God, next game. Uh, I, I, we, you know, we got to – because whatever you did last game doesn't matter anymore. Next game's coming up. You got to win. You got to win. And if you don't win – now, all of a sudden, everybody's like, well, you didn't win the last game. Uh-oh. You better get a good result in the next game. And so that's a short-term world. Sporting director is long-term. And so I've, I've come to realize over the years that one of the things you can't do is you can't overreact. You know, things are never as bad as they seem, and they're never as good as they seem. You, you, you're usually somewhere in the middle. And so when you're evaluating your, your, your team, you're evaluating what you play, you're evaluating individual players, you have to have a, a level of, of – patience and calmness. Um, I've always said, you know, when you take this job, one of the big things you got to have is you got to have a, 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 a big heart and a short memory. <laughs> because if you if you didn't have those two things, nobody would ever play. Um, because guys make mistakes. Things happen. I mean, I make mistakes. I tell the players all the time. I make mistakes all the time. Maybe I don't put the right starting 11. Maybe, you know, I said, hey, we should press this game instead of drop off. And 
you know, but we all got to live with each other and we got to find a way to come up with solutions. We also have to have trust. So I think as sporting director, it's, it's more patience and it's long-term view. The, the final question is a lot harder. It, it, it just is. It's, uh, I always think that, and I've always said this, when I, when I came into this job, um, I had played for a lot of teams over my 15 year career. I played for a lot of managers. And to be honest, there's a lot of times where, shoot, uh, I never even got any conversation, let alone if I did, a lot of times they were, they were more to appease than they were direct and, and honest. And so I was new from day one. For me, it was going to be exactly the second one. It's going to be direct and honest. And I know that sometimes we all don't like what we wanted. You know, we ask for something. Hey, can you tell me what you think? And then you get the information and you don't like it. Um, for me, it was always to be that. What I've always tried to do is I've tried to do it with respect. I've tried to do it um, as timely as I possibly uh, can. Um, and then the last piece is you, you can't you can't sweep something under the rug. You have to deal with it right away. And if you deal with it right away, you, you, you get two things. One is you get that problem off of your head that you're not thinking about it. But the other is, is that you allow the other person to know that, hey, this is this is a a a a, a problem or a challenge. And I'm giving you as much time as we as you you can get to try to solve it. And I think those things always usually bode well for you in the long run. Doesn't mean that every situation is going to be great, but you're dealing with it right away. Peter, you spoke about your playing career. And what I like when we're talking at OGs of U.S. soccer, it's that their stories are different. Because now you see the guys going over to Europe, they're superstars. They've got, they're playing for the best teams in the world. They've got the Drunk cars, Ferraris. they've got, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's different. You guys were pioneers in this move. You played in Hungary, the Netherlands, second division Spain. What was an ex that experience for an American abroad in those times? So, you know, everybody, you know, I, I don't have all the history and everything, but I do know that Paul Caligiuri and myself were the two guys that were the first Americans to be playing Division I uh, in Europe uh, at, at any time. And, and I'm saying born in the United States and then going overseas. In Hungary, the first place I went, so just kind of give you the, the environment, I lived at the stadium. What? What? The stadium, the stadium and the training facility were on the same plot of land. It was all enclosed. They had uh, seven, if you will, well, six dorm rooms and one, uh, one apartment for the caretaker of the entire facility and his family. And so when I got there, I came there right after the Olympics. And then in 88, the Olympics were, uh, were pushed back later because of the weather in, in Korea. And so I didn't start with them until late September, October. And it just didn't make sense for me to now spend all this time trying to find an apartment and all these other things. So they offered me this opportunity. They said, hey, listen, you want to just stay here for a couple weeks in, in this dorm room until we find you a place and all that stuff. How old are you? I was 20, 22, maybe 20, somewhere like wow. 21, 22, 23, somewhere in there. And I was, I was single as well. This wouldn't have flown if I was married. But, <laughs> um, but I, I lived in a dorm room at the stadium. Now, the great thing was when I woke up in the morning, honest to God, I was I was 25 yards from the locker room. So that was great. <laughs> Can't be late, huh? So when I hear these guys talk today and, 
oh, too much travel and all this other stuff. Yeah, it doesn't even doesn't even resonate with me. Nah, different times. Seriously, built differently. Wow. Uh, well, Peter, one of the one of the things that I love and admire about you, there are many things, but I know that you very much enjoy a nice glass of red wine after a game. So on Saturday, if you guys win, if you get a little help from a few other teams and you are able to make it to the playoffs and play in that play-in game, what wine will you be drinking? So I'll share this with you. Uh, uh, we have, you know, like six owners within the, within the team. Um, our, our, one of our major, majority share owners, uh, Cliff Illig, his wife, Bonnie Illig, Bonnie and I have a, a, a great relationship. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I play for a, a great ownership group. I, I really do. I'm, I'm, it, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. We got a great relationship. At any rate, uh, one day, uh, and, and, and I know, Susanna, you've been through the stadium and in the owner's box, but they never call it that. It's called the Victory Suite. They have a, a, a wine closet up there, and obviously there's some some high-end wines. And so uh, one day, one one game years ago, years ago, I asked Bonnie, I said, Bonnie, you got to send somebody upstairs to go get a, a good bottle of wine. Um, sorry, my, my light in my office went out. Um, I said, I said, uh, uh, you got to go up and get, get somebody to get a good bottle of wine after this great win today. And, and it might have been something, maybe it was home. We won the U.S. Open Cup or something. I don't remember. But at uh, any rate, so she did. And then afterwards, she said, well, for now on, when we win, I'll, I'll get a good bottle of wine. I'll have one brought down. So it's been kind of this tradition ever since. Um, and it's also been funny at times because obviously when we were going through the stretch this season and not having one, and we had one, and obviously we didn't play every game at home because in the first 11 games we played eight of them away. Um, after like the third or fourth game, she said, you know, there's a good and bad to this. And I said, what's that? And she said, the, the, the bad is I haven't been able to go get the good wine. Um, the bad is is the time is allowing it to get better and better when we actually drink it. So <laughs> I don't know if I bought into that because I would have rather have drank the wine a lot earlier, uh -huh. but she picks it. Um, so it'll be good no matter what. She's got good taste. I if you lose, it. you get a box of Franzia. <laughs> <laughs> if we lose, I don't get anything. <laughs> uh, well, Peter, we, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning. Best of luck this weekend. My pleasure. Great talking to you guys. Great to catch up. Always, right. PB. <laughs> We're going to take a break. Um, we're going to chat some MLS end of season awards when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Morning Footy. Well, the end of the MLS regular season opens up the conversation for the end of season awards. Earlier this week, we discussed uh, MVP and Young Player of the Year. Today, we're diving into the MLS Ziggy Schmidt Coach of the Year. Here's a look at some of the notable nominees. Um, but I think when you look at this list, there are it's a two-horse race between Bradley Carnell of St. Louis City and um, Pat Noonan of hmm. FC Cincinnati. I... I, I I, I mean, a Wilfred Nancy, absolutely. Pablo, like you can you can make a case for some of these guys, but I think it comes down to these two head coaches and what they have done for their respective teams. Bradley Carnell in St. Louis City's inaugural MLS season, 
won the Western Conference. They're sitting in the number one seed mm -hmm. in the Western Conference. Pat Noonan for FC Cincinnati in his second year in charge. They have won the Shield. They are an MLS Cup favorite. It's it's pretty astounding. Charlie, I do you agree that it's it's between these two guys? I do. I, I, I think Bradley Carnell and Pat Noonan are, are above the rest, but I also want to give credit to Oscar Perea from going from seventh place uh, to third third in the Supporter Shield standings. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment, um, or second in the Supporter Shield standings. And then Wilfred Nazi taking a, a Columbus Crew side that was demissed on the playoffs last season now is one of those opponents that y you're scared to play in the playoffs. But ultimately, Bradley Carnell, to take an expansion side and get them to compete, given that you've had injuries to Joao Klaus, mm. who had 10 goals uh, this season, 13 starts, but he, he's missed a big portion of the season, and that was your, your goal-getter in the start of the season. But they haven't, this has been a, a real team performance, and it comes down to really the coaching, because it's the tactics. Bradley Carnell is unproven as a professional manager. Now he's proven. This has been an astounding season from that standpoint. And I get that Pat Noonan has his team playing at an incredible level, and it's led by one player, Lucho Acosta, in the middle, pulling the strings. He's improved defensively. That's where he's really yeah. helped Cincinnati improve drastically is defensively because last season, you know, they, they were shipping goals. They had 56 goals against this season. Uh, 37. Mm -hmm. that, that's the that major change. That had always been their so, Achilles heel, but too. But if, if I had yeah. to give a vote, we've never seen an expansion side do something like I this. I want to so, remind I, you, too, you had no belief in this St. Louis team. After the, their hot start, you said, ain't no way this team ain't is no way. going I, to yeah. continue. I, yeah, who did? I'm going to roll did? back the ticket. Yeah, roll it back because... Yeah. <laughs> With with their style of play, this this press, it's this fast, relentless feast press, feast of famine, right? It's get after it, and they don't have one big star. There's not like one player that you're saying, "Hey, we're going to depend on." Jean Close, their striker was out, and they were still able to to put these performances and at home, especially incredible. Let me let me put it into perspective even bigger because you said it, this is an expansion side has never done this, mm -hmm. and it's an expansion side has never done what Bradley Carnell has done in the top five American sports in history. No wow. expansion side has stat. clinched a regular a, a, a conference title in their first season. He tied the record in MLS with 16 wins, obviously now takes it over as the best expansion side with 17. Five wins to start the season. Even I was like, this has to collapse yeah. at some point. I even told the story. Consistency? I was like, no way. Like, this, when I spoke to Luch Fantasy, who put this team together, he said, we're not going to go after the big names. We're going to be the hard workers. We're going to get local guys. We're gonna, and I'm like, bro, you're going to lose. Bro. <laughs> I'm like, that's not how you win. Have you even seen Atlanta? You got to get stars. And they did it. They actually did it. You know what's it. incredible, too, is that Bradley Carnell took over after Chris Armis was let go at Red Bulls and did really well with that Red Bulls team. And then they didn't bring him back. And I wonder now, like, how oh, Red you, Bulls are feeling about that. Oh, you know how they're that. feeling about because that. Because when you look at what this guy has done for, for St. Louis City, and I, I, I spoke to him in November of last year. It was almost a year ago. It was ahead of their, their first season. And I was so – 
he, it was funny because he was like, you know, in some ways, I don't really know what I'm doing, but he was like, we have everything in place because they had given them so much time. They had set themselves up and put themselves in such a good position, signing players early on. He knew he was going to be the head coach for a year ahead of that. He had time to create this team that has now produced the results that have gotten them to the top of the Western and Conference standings. Th they've taken it step by step, game by game, because they've probably even exceeded expectations to themselves, and that is all credit to the institution as a whole. Remember at the beginning when we were talking about the hot start and blah, 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 and comparing it to other expansion clubs? When you look at Inter-Miami and, and their first season where- Atlanta United or, too or, as well. Or, or, or e mm -hmm. In Even Atlanta season. United had a little bit more direction than, for example, it's, it's, well, look at Cincinnati, who even have a blueprint from before, from the, their USL days. When you come into the league that first season, it's, it's always very difficult to get the parts together, to have an understanding, to have this thread throughout the entire season. Mm -hmm. And that's all credit to the institution, to the way that this team was built, for there to be belief, confidence, conviction in the whole process. And not and has massive spending like we saw from Atlanta yeah, United blown us away. and from LAFC because you expected them to do well given the names. St. Louis, you're like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This needs to end now and it's gonna. Guys, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a fantastic day, everybody. <laughs>